Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. I'm Linda Crater. I am delighted to share that our sponsor for today's show is Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. On previous shows, I shared my last three delicious meals with you, making us all very, very hungry. So I won't do that to you this morning. But I am looking forward to my next comes Friday. The flexibility was the most fun part. If I want to skip a week, I do, and there's no long-term commitment. And if I want to change which meals would be shipped, I can do that too. So I've done that. And in future shows, I will tell you about those delicious experiences. One thing I've learned is that whether I'm cooking by myself or in a group, which is very great fun, zapping things in the microwave can feed you but doesn't, as a friend of mine once said, allow you to put the love into the meal. I truly believe that. I highly recommend this service. So check out this week's menu and get your first three with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash military network. You will really enjoy how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com forward slash military network. Blue Apron, a better way to cook, and I am looking forward to Friday. For today's show, I am joined by Jason McNamara. Jason, it's good to be here with you. Thank you. Always glad to be with you, Linda. Yeah, we learn so much on these shows. And today's show is very interesting because I think war stories and history and oral tradition is so key to our history and honoring and respecting our military. And I think often stories are lost only to be found later. And you think, why did we miss that? I'm sure that you have stories that you will pass on. What do you think about that oral history and making sure that we know some of these amazing stories in our past? You know, what's what's super interesting about this topic is that, um, but if you're not in the military, and you enter boot camp, mm-hmm. you're sort of inundated with all of this history. And, you know, as a young man or woman, you tend to, you know, brush yourself through high school and through studies, and you have to take certain social studies, and you do that as a requirement, and you don't give a lot of thought or connection to the history itself. But what mm-hmm. you find when you're actually in boot camp or in military training is that not only are you inundated with history, but then now you also become part of it. And, you have a certain connection to the history that's very unique and and provides a lot of different perspectives than you once had going into the military. And they spend a lot, at least in, in the Marine Corps side of things, we spend a lot of time focusing on history and studying the warriors that were before us and the episodes and the encounters that our fellow Marines had uh, prior to us joining. And it becomes this sort of um, open book uh, of a history palette, if you will, that we get to contribute to as a military member. So it's a, it's super interesting, and I'm glad we're talking about it today because um, for those veterans out there, I know you can relate to me in this perspective that we really spend a lot of time 
not only thinking about where we were, but also where we're going. Wow, that was beautifully said, because I think that when you, when the civilian world hears these stories, it, it uplifts everyone, and it I don't think is generally known. And so I recently saw the movie Hacksaw Ridge, which is an amazing movie. Um, or if you've read the book Flags of Our Fathers, um, or in Vietnam, there's a fictionalized account called Matterhorn. These are all fascinating and bring to light that perspective that you're talking about. And it is our history. And oral history has been around forever. But we tend to miss it in today's cyber world and moving so fast. But I also think it's superficial. So hearing these stories brings a depth, it seems, to the warrior ethos and the connection between each generation and each era of warrior serving. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, oral traditions is something that um, even me as a new father think about passing on to my son and, and how we display that from generation to generation is super critical. And we have lost touch with a lot of these things. And I think, um, you know, it remains to be seen if we'll ever get back to that, that place of quote unquote normalcy where we're passing on, um, these oral traditions. But, you know, the one thing is for certain that history still remains a very important piece of our life. And, uh, the more that we can study and familiarize ourselves with that, the more knowledgeable we can be in the future. Well, it is. And what do they say? If you don't know your history, you are doomed to repeat it. So we can learn from stories in the past. We can learn about a warrior ethics and the camaraderie that those of us have not been in the military can only view secondhand. So I am very pleased today. We're going to be talking to author Michael Keane. He's a Vietnam veteran who served two uh, tours in Vietnam with the Marine Corps. So I've got two Marines on here today, which I always love. And we're going to be talking about a town in Holly, New York, where a group of young men paid the ultimate price. And I'll let Michael tell you the story in greater detail. But this is one of those stories that will stick with you once you hear it. And it's pretty amazing. So I'm really impressed and delighted to welcome Michael Keene to Military Network Radio. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? We are doing well. And, and as right. you can tell, we're both very interested in talking more about this. And mm -hmm. I, I'll start with, tell us your belief about sharing stories that are compelling and significant from the military. Do you agree with what Jason and I spoke about before? Add anything? Well, in terms of oral histories, that is as close to the truth, I guess, as we're going to be able to get. Um, I've been doing research on local history for the past, let's see, 14 years. I've written seven books. I've actually made four historical documentaries all about unusual but true episodes of uh, New York history. And it's amazing to me that the farther away you get from an event, uh, the more... Uh, um, unknown it becomes in a sense. So, yeah, if you can talk to someone who is there, um, I find that that's always preferable than to read what somebody else wrote about what somebody else said, <laughs> you know, that was <laughs> taken from another source. And uh, so hopefully the book that I've just written about the Holly Boys 
uh, will reflect that. I, I agree, Jason. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I don't have I don't have anything to to sort of add right there and then. But I mean, just, just I'm looking forward to the the show. So, thanks for being here. Thank yeah, you, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, you knew about the story. Uh, I mean, about the oral history and the importance of history, as you said, coming firsthand as closely as one can do. How did you first learn about the Holly Boys from New York? Right, that is the uh, that is the question, um, and it came about quite accidentally, as most of the stories uh, come to me. I, I people have asked me, you know, how do I choose the stories that I write about? And I hope it's not a cliche, but I believe it's true. I, I don't so much choose the stories; I think they choose me. And this <laughs> is a perfect example. Um, about four years ago, uh, my family and I went to the Rochester area Vietnam Memorial. That's mm -hmm. in Rochester, New York. I live in a small suburb just outside of Rochester. And the Vietnam Memorial is dedicated to the 280 Rochester area Vietnam veterans who died in Vietnam. And the way they do that is that there are 280 plaques and on each plaque is the branch uh, of service mm -hmm. that the veterans served with, uh, their name, of course, their date of birth, their date of death, and the high school that they attended. That little interesting the, end, the high school they attended, uh, I found to be fascinating. And it was only later, after I had done the research, that I realized how important that actually was. But... So anyway, as we made our way through the memorial and reading each one of the 280 plaques, it became quite apparent, uh, shockingly so, of how many of these 280 uh, boys, as I will call them, uh, uh, who died in Vietnam had attended Holly High School. And it was only after I got home that day that I uh, did a little research and found that there were eight. Now, when you look at the size of Holly, which is a small rural farming community uh, located in Orleans County, New York, not too far from where Rochester is. Um, you, you, I found out that it was considered to be one of the highest, if not the highest, casualty rates for any town in the United States during the Vietnam War. Mm. Well, at the time... I was engaged in other research of other books, and so that's just one of those things that got filed in the back of my uh, in the back of my brain. And it wasn't until uh, four years later, literally last March, that I was going to another small town in Orleans County to deliver a talk about one of my other books about the history of the Erie Canal. Well, anyway. Uh, driving through Orleans County, you're just passing one farm after another. It's uh, uh, quite uh, quite remote and quite rural. And as I was approaching the town that I was to give the talk in, I saw a sign that said, Holly, three miles. And instantly, I had three simultaneous thoughts came into my head. By the way, I didn't realize that my head could contain three simultaneous thoughts. But it did <laughs> on that occasion, and which was I suddenly flashed back four years earlier to the memorial where I had learned about the eight Holly boys who died in Vietnam. 
Number two, I flash back, so to speak, to my a lot of my own experiences in Vietnam, which had happened a long, long time ago. And, you know, when one gets on with life, you tend to, at least I do, tend to put those other experiences in, in the back corner somewhere. And then number Michael? three, I realized Michael? immediately I was going to write a book. Yes. Michael, it's perfect timing. We need to stop for a break. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we will be back after these short messages. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. It's words you never heard. Did you ever check under the bed for monsters when you were a kid? That's what one man from Zimbabwe should have done. When Guy Whittle retired for the evening at the Humani Lodge where he works, he had no clue that an eight-foot crocodile was sleeping under his bed. He got out of bed to eat breakfast and heard one of the housekeepers scream. What's a word for the fear of reptiles? Herpetophobia. Mr. Whittle said that he had previously been sitting on the edge of the bed with his bare feet dangling just centimeters away from the 300-pound croc. Maybe crocodile noses aren't that sensitive after all. What's another word for smelly feet? Podhogramadrosis. To use a term from Shakespeare, these two were strange bedfellows. It's words you never I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our story with Michael Keane telling us about how he was putting together thoughts from years before when he'd visited Memorial and then drove through the town where the Holly Boys went to high school. And Michael, continue your discussion. Sorry, we had a little break in there. These stories almost become better as we wait for the next chapter. So will you take us on to the next chapter? Sure. So after I had realized what I was going to do, which was to research the story of the Holly Boys and to more than likely write a book about it, I then began my research, which becomes, for me, a a fascinating aspect of how do you go back and research people who are alive today who were involved in one way or another events that happened 50 years earlier. You know, it makes sense, and I'm going to ask the obvious question. We've had shows where there are more recent stories from, uh, say, OIF, OEF, and they gather their battle buddies through social media. You, you know, I'm not certain that generation would be on social media these days, so I'm intrigued on how you found them. You found either them or their family members, I imagine, but... How did you go about finding them and doing this research? Right. Well, the first thing I did is uh, uncover the original obituaries that appeared in the local paper, the local Holly paper, when the boys uh, uh, had died. And in the obituaries, they gave the names of the 
mothers and fathers, of course, but also their brothers and sisters and their age. Mm. And so with that information, I began to do some research in local Holly uh, using phone books and so on, of, of attempting to find people with that name, uh, still living in Holly, who I suspected could have been a brother or a sister. And I fired off uh, 12 letters to 12 most likely uh, prospects, as it were. Uh, I also was able to get a hold of the local Holly historian who actually went to high school with all these boys and huh. who had a number of names, addresses, uh, email addresses, and phone numbers of some of the, their uh, brothers and sisters, although some of that information was 40 to 50 years old. And that was the beginning. And when I finally received my first phone call from a, a woman who was the sister of one of the boys, that's what began the process. And, and you bring up social media, although I don't really do much with it. Uh, you'd be surprised that people who are even of the generation in their 60s and 70s are on Facebook, and through the help of some of them, I was able to eventually uh, uncover or discover uh, 35 of their brothers, sisters, family, other family members, neighbors, and in some cases, military buddies. Wow. So this kind of became like a, I don't want to compare it to like Ancestry.com, but you know, as you're starting to make some of these connections here, you started to find this sort of social map. I mean, how did you, I mean, how did that start to form itself and how did you respond to some of these things as you were learning? Right. Um, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to speak uh, before uh, many genealogical societies who are interested in how I go about doing the research on most of my other books. And most of my other books have been all been about events that happened 100, 150 years ago. And, of course, there's no living members or survivors of those events. But in this particular case, I, I guess the one thing I learned is that the best place to begin is, of course, with the oldest member of the family in, in, of, of who I want to get the information from. So the first, one of the first people I spoke to was another sister who was 85 years old. Uh, I live in New York. She lives in Florida. In fact, I managed to talk to people scattered all over the country on, on this project. And, of course, they not only knew about stories, or she not only knew about stories that are about her brother, but also stories about her father and mother and grandmother and grandfather. And so when I put the book together, it wasn't just about the Holly boys, but it was also about Holly, the town which mm -hmm. I write in many places in the book. Uh, it's quite a remarkable small town that most people have never heard of. And I learned about the history and, and the original settlers. And so it's more of a complete historical um, picture of not only Holly, but also of Orleans County, and I suspect of rural America going mm -hmm. back as far as over 100 years ago, and certainly what life was like growing up in a small town in, in America back in the 1950s and the 1960s. What is the town of Holly like today? As you were doing this, you had just driven through Holly. Right. What were your impressions as you gathered the historical significance and the facts, and you married them to your recent visit? Right. You know, 
after I had come to learn the basic structure of the story uh, of the lives of the eight boys, coming into Holly was a very, uh, for me, a very strange sensation. Uh, I don't want to, you know, make too much of it, but it was almost like I was uh, coming upon hallowed ground, so to speak, Mm -hmm. because of what else I learned about the town. Uh, You know, at one point, I even thought about not even getting much into the way of the Vietnam War, because I found other uh, parts of the story that were as, uh, to me anyway, as uh, fascinating as as perhaps the war and the fact that the Holly Boys represented the highest casualty rate of the Vietnam War. Uh, You can't divorce the two, obviously. But I've come to know many people there. And, boy, you know, it's, it's a pretty good place to be. And the people are, are really, uh, really nice. And so there's a, I have a strong connection to the town. I also uh, had a strong connection to the boys, not so much because I was a Vietnam veteran and was in Vietnam at approximately the same time as most of them, but also their lives growing up, uh, playing Little League baseball, uh, being a Boy Scout, being a paper boy going to sock hops, Um, also driving cars too fast and drinking beer and smoking. (laughs) Um, I was, in a way, relived my own childhood, and and theirs and mine uh, were very similar. So in a way, it was almost like a a family reunion, so to speak. You know, I, I think it's interesting. It sounds to me, and it's coming through your voice, that you found something personally from this journey of discovery? I would say so. Um, I tend to be, and I think this is probably true of a lot of veterans, and and, and assuming that there are family members of veterans who are listening to us today, they are, uh, can tell you, of course, that, well, they, he never talks about, you know, being in the service, or he never talks about whether it's the Vietnam War, the Afghan War, uh, the Iraq War, or what have you, Second World War, Korean War. And that's true with a lot of veterans. But in this particular case, I had to confront it in a way. Um, although I thought I knew a lot about the war, what led us into it, uh, the conduct of it, and those events that eventually caused us to withdraw. But I had to immerse myself into the war itself and it was in so doing that uh, you know again a lot of the memories uh, that I guess I don't know if I had suppressed them so to speak that sounds rather dramatic I I think you just push a number of things in the background but so I came to to look at that war again from a totally new perspective and and the boys themselves as I came to know them, uh, I really came to appreciate them uh, as boys. And, and, and many of them were, from any uh, definition you want to use, were true heroes. That's the other part to this story of these eight boys who, um, who died in Vietnam. So as you, uh, you, you fleshed out the boys, I'd love to hear more about the boys. But mm-hmm. I'm also hearing that the connection to the town and to rural America, today still, the majority of veterans come from small towns in America. Right. And I, I wonder if you believe or can 
comment on the connection with small towns and values and honor and all of those aspects of service that are still driving a lot of those decisions to uh, enlist and to join the armed services. How is that connection still so strong today? Sure, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, when I was doing the research, I found that the Holly boys' fathers all served in the Second World War. Uh, most of their grandfathers served in the First World War. Um, so the tradition of military service is a long and uh, distinguished one uh, in Holly. And, and again, I suspect in the other research that I've done, that's true with a lot of small towns. The thing about Holly is that everyone knew everyone else. Mm -hmm. These eight boys all went to the same high school. They all lived literally within a mile of one another. They all, they and their parents and their brothers and their sisters and so on all shopped at the same supermarket. They all went to the same post office. You know, they all went to the same bank. And mm -hmm. so for the period of uh, six years, which if you take the, when the first boy was killed to the last, it was a six-year period, the town was constantly uh, confronting uh, death uh, and the Vietnam War because they all went to all the funerals. And, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of books written uh, about uh, post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome or disorder on the part of veterans. But I believe one of the things I found is, uh, is a town that was suffering from that because it was unrelenting. Uh, they could never get away from it. And, and I think in a way that drew them, in fact, I know, it drew them even closer together. And that was the other thing that I observed. You had asked me what it was like to come into Holly. Um, a lot of people in Holly never moved away. Uh, and, and those that did, uh, have, and it's in the book, uh, remarkable stories of how they come back every year. Uh, for Christmas, you know, as one uh, a good friend of one of the boys told me, he said, we could go anywhere. I was very successful. This is he speaking, very successful engineer and so on and so forth. But for vacation, you know, at Christmas time, we always come back to Holly. Mm -hmm. So there's also that very strong uh, interpersonal connection. And they are still, uh, and, the, and the memorials that the town has erected, uh, in commemoration of not just the eight boys, but of veterans in general. It's quite impressive. They still have flag day ceremonies. Um, and oh, I love it. Through the town. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, we have to go on another break. And okay. after the break, let's come back and hear about the individual Holly boys and their contributions and what you were learning. You're listening to Military Network Radio. You can find more of our shows at militarynetworkradio.com. We have a short break, and we will come back and speak more with Michael Keane, author of The Story of the Holly Boys. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. live by bread alone he must have his peanut butter peanut butter is a pate of childhood and it's not just for kids his dogs love it too last night i gave my dog a pill hidden in peanut butter 
What's a word for a messy concoction that helps the medicine go down? Sliver sauce. Mice apparently prefer peanut butter to cheese when it comes to luring them into the trap. But there are even more practical uses for peanut butter. Peanut butter contains natural oils, which makes it perfect for removing all kinds of sticky things, like gum stuck in your shoe or in your hair. What's a word for the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth? Arachibutophobia. And according to Barry Goldwater, if you don't mind smelling like peanut butter for two or three days, peanut butter is a darn good shaving cream. It's marching Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Are you looking for something more in your life or business? More success? More stability? More happiness? It's all out there waiting for you, but it doesn't just happen. You've got to go get it. Make it happen with Michelle McCullough, where motivation and strategy intersect. Michelle is a serial entrepreneur, acclaimed speaker, and the WooHoo Radio Network's resident business and success strategist. Michelle has the smart strategy and experience to help you improve your life and take your business to the next level. You've got big dreams. You've got big vision. Now it's time for you to make it happen. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are continuing our discussion with Michael Keene. And Jason, on the break, you had a question. Yeah, I sure did. And that I, it was something that I would just want to come back to. So just take a half, half step back. You, you mentioned when you were chatting earlier about the devastation to the town. And, mm-hmm. you know, what, what I've seen as a veteran in my own community here in Southern California or be it in Chicago or wherever I was living at the time is that when there was a death, you know, there was a certain cohort of folks in the community that sort of rallied up or that felt the immediate aftermath of, of that veteran's passing. Um, but in a smaller town with, you know, these boys sort of going out their way and then, you know, co- not coming back, the devastation had to be, I would imagine, much more rippling. I'm just, just curious if you could share a little bit about what you learned with how the town responded to some of those things and, and then also how they started to cope with, with, with these episodes. Right. Um, you know, a lot of this I didn't find out until after the book came out. And where I began to receive the most amazing phone calls and emails. Hmm. Um, for instance, I received one when one of the boys, he was the only boy who was married and had a two-year-old daughter when he was killed. That was 49 years ago. Um, now, 49 years later, I get an email from the daughter. Wow. And she wanted to know if I knew her father. And could I give her any other information? Um, And I had to tell her that I did not know her father, but at least she could draw some comfort from the fact that he now will always be remembered and honored. I received so many emails from people who said I knew all the boys, um, and they've never forgotten. Not only did they remember, but they could... you know, they knew their names. They knew when they died. They knew where they had lived. They knew where their parents were. Um, in fact, three weeks ago, I had a book signing in Holly at the American Legion Hall. Okay, it all kind of, it all uh, mm-hmm. meshes, and we had, you know, literally standing room only, and the town had turned out, and they had brought baked cookies and cakes and pies and coffee and. Uh, soda and and so on 
and this was an event. Uh, they were uh, going to meet the person who wrote the book. And, and, you know, and actually that was another thing uh, that I did not realize at the time. I was writing a book about a, what I thought was just a remarkable story. Um, but the way the town viewed what I had done was that I had written a book that honored mm. not only the eight boys, but also the town, because they had lived with this burden. You had asked Jason what uh, the repercussions of the town for 50 years. And, and they had thought that they had been forgotten. They knew that the sacrifice that was made was extraordinary, but no one else acknowledged it. Mm -hmm. And now it has been acknowledged. And although that wasn't my purpose, per se, um, th that's the way they look at it. And, and as I now put myself on their, uh, in their shoes, I can see certainly why they came to believe that and sure. uh, the response that I've gotten has been tremendous it's been um, I think a great relief for much of the town as a matter of fact they sell my book in the town hall oh, and the way, they, oh. this, the way they notified <laughs> people that I was going to be at the American Legion Hall doing a book signing is that Holly has its own uh, electric uh, small electric company that provides electricity to just the people who live in the town of Holly. There's only uh, uh, 1,500 people who live in the entire town. And the way they did it is they put the notice inside the, uh, their electric bills. So when people got their electric bills in the beginning of January and they knew that you're going to open up your electric bill uh, statement, there was the notification that the, uh, the fellow who had written the book about the Holly boys was going to be in town. That's how the town looks at you know, what has happened. Love small towns. <laughs> I mean, that, that is, that's really an interesting aspect of it. I'm glad we talked about that because when you have only 1,500 people in a town, I imagine the impact is high. Um, we have, I'm from a small town as well, and there is a memorial that is honored each uh, patriotic day, I will call it, um, in parades and the plaques are on it too but it is obviously not the number that you're talking about with the holly boys that that's a very warming story because being forgotten is the worst mm -hmm. and so knowing that you you are forever remembered is that had to be a, an excellent book signing for you and something far different than a general one i imagine right perfect Let's talk a little bit about the Holly Boys, just to mm -hmm. sort of give us a taste of some of these young men. And the differences, as you talked about, over the six-year period, were there any differences that you noted over that time frame? Well, to start with probably the, um, the saddest aspect of this, and this I think is borne out by other research that I've done, that the most dangerous period of time for a Vietnam veteran when they were in Vietnam was during their first month mm -hmm. there and during their last month. And the reason that that is uh, believed to be so is because during the first month you have not learned what you have to know in order to stay alive. And during the last month, you're, you uh, have now taken your guard off because now you can almost taste going back home, 
and you're not as vigilant as perhaps as you learned how to be. And that was so. I mean, of the eight boys, I don't have it here right in front of me, but I believe seven or six or seven of them either died during their first month or their last month. But um, as far as the boys themselves are concerned, um, the first uh, boy to die was John Davis. Uh, The thing that struck me about him is that he was the youngest member of the Holly Volunteer Fire Department. Um, He also was a star soccer player. Now, this is back in in the late 1950s. I didn't even know we played soccer in the United States (laughs) in the late 1950s, but he did for for Holly High School. Uh, David Case was the second boy to die. He was a Marine, by the way, and he was a paper boy extraordinaire. He actually won an award for being one of the best paper boys uh, for uh, the Democrat and Chronicle, which is a major newspaper in upstate New York, and was sent to New York on a trip. How, uh, Ronald Sisson was the third one, and he, in some ways, was the most remarkable of all. He, on his own, uh, took upon himself to uh, visit shut-ins, uh, the elderly, just to help them out with how, whatever they needed. And one particular case uh, bought a lamp and gave it to an elderly woman so she could read her mail. Uh, he also was awarded the Silver Star. And in a way, and I have it in the book, that he died as he had lived in helping and saving others. Uh, mm-hmm. Howard Bowen was a, a farmer. And there's some funny stories, especially one where he is constantly being sprayed by skunks. And what you have to do to get that smell off of you. It's, it's a hilarious story having to do with homemade tomato juice. Um, mm-hmm. Gary Bullock was a star basketball player for Holly High School. Gary Stimus grew up, uh, his, his parents and his grandparents were muck farmers. Um, and I have a, an explanation as to what muck land is. And it's only found in, in a few places in the United States. Uh, but uh, Orleans County, where Holly is located, is kind of the home of muck land and muck farming. Uh, George uh, Fisher was a uh, uh, stock car racer and, and quite successful. He won three major stock car races and probably was the one boy that has so many friends. I mean, 50 years later, I'm talking to his racing buddies, and they're still overcome with emotion. Uh, with George, and there's a, uh, there's a remarkable story about an incident that happened at his funeral. Uh, and then uh, there was Paul Mandrakia, whose parents came to the United States via Ellis Island. They came from Sicily. And that whole story is the story of America, in a way. And so, in taken in the whole, you know, we have, again, as I relate to what life was like, uh, growing up in small town or in America uh, itself uh, during uh, you know that period of the 1950s and the 1960s. Jason? Oh, maybe we lost Jason. Uh, as you're going as you're thinking about this now and we have about two and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, before the last break, it's going quickly, um, do you think that small towns today still have the appreciation for the 
service and sacrifice that is happening today? You know, I, I would say so. Um, you know, if you live in a big city, obviously, if you lived in New York or, or where have you, uh, and especially during wartime, there's many people who are killed during the war, but you don't know them. Um, Good point. You could have somebody who lives a block away from you, and, and you wouldn't necessarily know their story. They're on a, they live in a different part of the city. But small towns, everyone knows everybody. And I think that there's that esprit de corps, so to speak, not from the military standpoint so much, but just the way people look at their town. They're proud of their town. Mm -hmm. And they're proud of their high school. And they're proud of their marching band. And and so I, I think it is different than uh, living in perhaps in the suburbs or a large city. It makes sense. You, yeah, ahead, so, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was on mute before and I couldn't get to <laughs> unmute it. So, um, do you do you get a chance to to still stay connected to to the town and, and to some of the folks? I mean, how how are you still um, engaged with them? Just curious about that. Well, I was there no longer than like three days ago. Uh, I, I see the town historian all the time. Yeah, they they order books for me so they can sell them in town, and I'm there a lot for that. Um, of course, I was there just this past January 14th of the book signing. I'm going to be there in April giving a talk. It's the uh, um, uh, first town meeting for the year, and I'm the featured speaker. Um, I'm still in contact with uh, several of the brothers and sisters who I interviewed for the book. So I think I'm, I think I'm a member you know, of the of the community. <laughs> I think you are. I, I think I've been adopted. And uh, it's, uh, you know, and with that comes a responsibility. You know, when I was doing the research, I realized something. I, I, I always knew this in my previous books, that you, when you write about local history, you better get your facts straight, because even something that happened 100 years ago, you'll be surprised. Somebody will come out of the woodwork, and they'll say, hey, you know, that was my grandfather you wrote about. And they'll know what happened better than what Michael, you think Michael, we've got you another break. Now. We'll be back right after. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. seen the video of the little seal that jumped into the back of a boat to escape being eaten by killer whales? A family was whale watching near Vancouver Island, British Columbia when they noticed a pod of orcas swimming around their boat. All of a sudden, a harbor seal swam up to the stern of their boat and jumped in with the orcas hot on his tail. When a whale leaps out of the water exposing most of its body, it's called breaching. There are 32 different species of seals distributed throughout the world and are found from polar to tropical waters. The largest concentrations of seals in the U.S. are in California and New England. Everyone who has seen the video agrees this was one lucky seal. What's another word for the fear of the sea? Thalassophobia. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome to Toginet, cutting-edge radio. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. 
Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are talking to Michael Keene. And, Michael, I, I love hearing about the small towns, the connections, and the engagement. Do you feel that... Um, There are many, many books being written about the current conflicts and the past ones as well. And it seems to go in phases and acceptance appears quite high right now. Do you think our country knows our war stories and how best to share them, even though we're the most connected we've ever, ever been with, as you've already mentioned, Michael, Facebook and social media, as well as good old letters and snail mail and phone calls and talking to people. Do you feel that we can share our stories in ways that are still as meaningful? Well, the approach that I tried to use with the Holly Boys book was not to necessarily dwell on the war itself, Mm -hmm. but to focus on the impact that the war had on the American home front. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if that's been written about a lot. Um, we read books about the experiences of the warriors, and, and, and in there, that's fine. We, we read about some remarkable people. Um, but it was my intent to kind of draw, hopefully, a bigger picture of what these uh, events, these wars, the impact that they have on the families and on the friends, and on, on the town, again, on the American home front. And I think if we did a little bit more of that, perhaps we would be a little bit more engaged. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, we, we tend to, you know, Americans, I've given this a lot of thought, Americans don't want war. When we do go, though, the, our first objective is to get the hell out of there and come back home and have a cookout on the back porch. I mean, that, you know, we're not the uh, global uh, or imperialist powers. We don't want to stay one minute longer than we have to. We want to get out of there and come back to the greatest country on earth. Uh, that's my little editorial comment, but I'm sure it's one that's believed by many. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, you know, my own small way that perhaps I've drawn attention to that and to what happens to the people who are left behind. What I call the survivors of the Vietnam War were not just the the troops that went there, but was their families as well. So um, going forward, um, as you, you know, we're talking about one specific town, and we talked about sort of the small town in general. What's sort of next for you, and and how are you sort of using your experiences, not to put a pun on history, but how are you using your previous experiences in history uh, carrying you forward uh, into some of your other engagements? Right. You know, I'm always asked, because I do a lot of uh, speaking events, and I travel around the state and doing a lot of other book signings and so on, and I'm always asked what my next project is. Mm -hmm. And I've now learned that I don't have to think about that. As I said, I don't choose the stories that I write about. (laughs) I allow them to choose me. And so someday I'm going to be driving down a back road somewhere. I know this is going to happen. This is the third time this has happened, by the way, Mm. this way. 
where I'm in the middle of nowhere and I see a sign and literally the sign creates my motivation for doing whatever that story is that's connected to that sign. So I'm sure that's going to happen again. I don't know when, and of course I don't know what it's going to be about. Uh, I can only um, I can only anticipate that it will happen again. So um, I want to I want to parse out two two messages here. One for sort of communities, and one for our fellow veterans. Um, you know, living both as a veteran, also as a historian, you know, you bring a certain perspective to things, I think, that um, most people probably can't relate to, especially um, speaking veteran to veteran. But what would be your message to, to fellow veterans or the men and women out there that have served with us? And um, and how has your experiences shaped that message? Well, I guess I would hope that they would take a look at their other veterans and and realize the extraordinary their extraordinary service um i don't know if much needs to be done about that again in in my own little way this and what and again as i said it wasn't something that i even had intended to do but turned out to be something that honored the service of uh, of certainly these eight boys but but of all vietnam veterans of all veterans and again of all families of veterans who in their own way uh, served and so I think from the veteran standpoint you know your your wives your your brothers your sisters your children your grandchildren you possibly owe them a little something uh, you know as opposed to you know, what everyone else owes you but um, let them know you're okay I guess and if you're not okay so, get okay I mean there, and there's and there's a lot of resources out there in order to hopefully make that happen. Let me unpack that a little bit because I, I, I think I know what you're getting at. So, and you talked about this at the beginning part where, you know, typically veterans don't necessarily open up about their experiences. Is, is what you're saying then basically is to sort of give back to your family in a way that would open some of that up? I think so because you'd be, you know, you're going to be helping them uh, and you're going to be helping yourself. They're, they're going to understand you a little bit better. You're going to be not so closed up. Um, you know, it's time to, as you know, as we now know as veterans, you, you go to a uh, store and you buy something and, and uh, they somehow find out you're a veteran. Maybe you're wearing an old uh, Marine Corps hat or something, and they say, welcome home. Uh, so, you know, in a way, you should all, you know, extend that to your family, you know, that, sure. you know, you're now welcoming them home. And, yeah. you know, so they can better appreciate uh, you and, and I think hopefully just make the family, you know, a stronger unit. This book has done a lot for me and my family. I didn't have problems with my family up, you know, doing this but or before. But it does open up a whole other part of your life that uh, you had not talked about. And they are very interested in hearing about it. It's interesting. And also uh, plays on what we talked about a little earlier with um – keeping in the oral traditions and being able to pass on stories um, orally to, to family members and generations. So um, flipping that a little bit. So I said the, the two ways here so that the veteran was the first way. The second way is thinking about what your message might be to communities that um, have veterans, which I think based on recent data, I think is, is almost every community around the country. But what would your message be to, to community members that maybe aren't so close to all of this and, you know, by default they have a hard time relating to it? 
and um, you know they they're always trying or, or they're making an effort, but um, sometimes you just make can't make that connection. What would your message be to them? Well, what I found is because again I do a lot of public speaking and I'm actually asked by many different uh, groups uh, to give talks about my books, and, and the one about the Holly Boys, and I think is surprising to me that even when I'm far afield and, and many miles removed from Holly, there is still an extremely strong interest in the war about the Vietnam War, uh, especially with a certain age group, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and so they come to my talks, and they can now learn, because half of my talk is about the Vietnam War, again, the events that led up to it, and the conduct of the war, and then the turning points that led us to withdraw. And it was, of course, a, uh, uh, an incredible period of time uh, in American history. And so anyway, uh, if you give people the opportunity to learn about it, uh, I think they will come, you know, so to speak. And that's what I have found out, that uh, there's a deep interest uh, in this. Uh, there's a deep uh, understanding that perhaps the Vietnam veteran wasn't treated as well as perhaps maybe more recent veterans have been treated. And, and there's, a, there's this attempt, uh, this desire to kind of make up for that. And uh, so I have found that uh, uh, there's, uh, again, people attend my talks, and, and I have found that because of some of the articles and whatnot have been written, I guess maybe the fact we're even doing this interview is because there is still that interest in that part of American history. Well, then I would add something to that. I think that today's vets, and Jason, I believe you'll agree with me on this, owe a great deal to the Vietnam veterans who went before them because you set the stage for never letting the divide between the war and those who fought um, occur again, leave no one behind, leave no one forgotten. And because of the Vietnam veterans, uh, we applaud efforts to make a connection with today's vets. And there are many who mentor today's vets. Jason's organization, Squad Leaders, works with veterans of the recent conflicts, but knows the value of the mentors, the, the those who have gone before. Jason, would you like to add anything to that? And then we'll give information on how to find I mean, I out more information. Exactly, yeah, I think that's exactly how we leaders, um, right? That was, uh, that was our mm-hmm. sort of whole notion was that we believe in the power of someone just a few steps ahead of the other and being able to carry them through. And uh, we started squadleaders.org for that purpose. And so we, we connect veterans to other veterans and sort of a senior upper lower classmen sort of arrangement like you would find in, in a college institution, but really establishing that, that network for um, comfort and support and transitional help. I guess I'm just saying thank you to our Vietnam vets because I think without them, I don't think we would have the transition to where we are today. And it's very meaningful. So thank you for that. Now, Michael, how do they find out more? I will post, of course, the link to your book and the article when we put this on militarynetworkradio.com. But how do they reach you? Is there a website they can go to? Right. Uh, my website is uh, ad hoc productions, that's plural, dot com. There's a couple of hyphens in there, ad hyphen, hoc hyphen, productions.com. 
Uh, also, if you Google my name, Michael T. Keen, K-E-E-N-E, -E, uh, the first thing that will appear on the top of the page will be my website. And if you also Google the, the uh, title of the book, Vietnam Reflections, The Untold Story of the Holly Boys, that will also take you to the top of the page, which will have my website. Either one of those three will work. That's great, because I, I do know that whenever we publish um, shows that have a, a wide audience, um, family members, uh, fellow vets, um, have you found that you're, and we have only a minute left, have you found that you have extended the reach with connecting with other veterans? I'm sorry, only about 30 seconds left. Well, it appears so. I, I, I made it a point to try to reach out to other veterans groups, local VFWs, American Legion halls. I've given uh, several talks uh, um, to these groups, and so I, I believe so. Um, you know, the book's well only done. been out about a month and a half, so time will tell. Perfect. Michael, thank you so much for giving of your time. And Jason, thank you for asking questions, as only you can do. And thank you to both of you for sharing your experiences. And we've been talking to Michael Keene. Join us next week for another great show. And we're glad that you've joined us. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance